I was in my mid to late 20s before I ever joined a, a community club of any sort that, that wasn't associated with the church. You see, I'd grown up in a Christian family and my family were always involved in all sorts of community activities, but, but mainly to do with church stuff. And, you know, and I personally, I'd been running youth groups and, and youth camps for years. I guess the reason why I hadn't been involved in other community groups much was was because, well, out in the bush, as you probably know, most community groups are, are really sporting types of clubs. And, and my parents, you see, weren't really that concerned about sport. Uh, for my dad, uh, sport was something which just got in the way of work. And uh, so I, as I grew up, I never had any involvement in soccer clubs or footy clubs or cricket clubs or tennis clubs. My only experience of community organisations was the church. But when I was 28, I joined the Dolby Pistol Club. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, There's a bunch of blokes and one solitary lady. Um, but we all had very similar interests, and uh, as you do when you're in a club like that. Um, and on the surface, we all seemed to get on like a house on fire. But as I spent more and more time with these folk and I got to know them better and as I got involved more in the committee and the, and the running of the club, I began to see another side to some of them. And I soon realised that for some of them, yeah, when they were relating to others in the club, when they meet them, they, they'd, they, they'd be all friendly and nice and chat away. But then when that other person wasn't there, they'd talk about them behind their backs and they'd say bad things about them and run them down it was awful. And I still enjoyed those shoots and I liked the blokes, but there was an ugly side to some of them. And sometimes it'd be disagreements and arguments. And it seemed to me that, that it was mainly because just a few people always wanted to get their own way in the running of the show. And usually the disagreements seemed to be, to me, to be over the most insignificant little matters. Uh, usually involving property and what they owned or, or whatever. But I started to reflect on this and I began to compare it to some of the churches that I'd been a member of in the past. And I realised that there were times that in the church some people would behave in a very similar way. Some people would always want to get their own way in the running of the church, usually in the little insignificant things and when they didn't get their own way, there'd be arguments and fights and people would run each other down behind their backs. Now, you've probably never seen that happen in churches, have you? No? Oh, I'm sort of seeing if hmm, yeah. And you've probably never seen it happen in community organisations, have you? No, it's just the way it is, isn't it? Like, it's the way that people are. But it was then that I realised that this sort of behaviour in the church, well, I always knew that it was wrong, but what I didn't know until then was how much it was so common behaviour in all sorts of community organisations. And it was then that I realised that this sort of stuff, when it's present in the church, well, it's a sign that the world is getting into the church. Because that's not how disciples of Jesus should behave. It might be what we come to expect, you know, when everybody wants their own way and they do a bit of backbiting and backstabbing. And in today's reading, James is warning us of the symptoms 
of when worldliness gets into the church. And these are some of the symptoms. Broken relationships, a broken prayer life, unfulfilled desires, pride, greed, and a constant quest for self-gratification. Last week we studied this same reading. Now, it's not often that I spend two weeks on the one passage, but there's a fair bit in this one, and and, um, it was either going to be one very long sermon or we'd break it up into two. And the message last week was about the war within, about the battle that goes on inside of us, uh, the battle between worldliness and godliness, and about how if we take on the ways of the world, we actually become enemies of God. James describes it as being double-minded, you know, wanting to be a Christian and have all the benefits of being saved, but, but wanting to live in the ways of the world. And James delivered a pretty stinging rebuke. He said to them, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All right, so that was that was last week's message, and if you haven't heard it, uh, it'd be a good one to download and, and have a bit of a catch up on because it sort of connects with this message, um, and you'll only have half the story without it. But last week we didn't really go into the symptoms of this double-mindedness, the symptoms of the world getting into the church. Now, of course. You understand, don't you, when I'm talking about the church, I'm not just talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, an international denomination or a national denomination. I'm talking about a bunch of Christians who meet together, right? When a bunch of Christians get together, that's a church, right? So we are a church here this morning. So the first symptom of the world getting into the church is broken relationships, Jesus said in John 13, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, now that's godliness. That's how a godly church should be. And I pray that the world would be able to look at this church and say, wow, they, they must really be disciples of Jesus because look at the way they love each other. Look at the way they care for one another. When one of them's hurting, they all hurt. When one of them is joyful, they're all joyful. Just, just look at the love they show for one another. They must be disciples of Jesus. My prayer is that would be what people would see of us. But when worldliness gets into the church, it's a different story. It all goes pear-shaped. Instead of love, there's bitterness. Back in chapter 3, verse 13, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast and and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, 
gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's like chalk and cheese, isn't it? There's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition versus pure, merciful peace. And this jealousy and selfish ambition, and we've probably all seen it in the church at various times, is what fractures relationships in the church. And this this um, worldliness can lead to every vile practice, to things that will make you sick happening within the church. At the moment, Australia is conducting a royal commission into the institutional responses to child sexual abuse. And some of the stories that you would have heard coming out as, as this commission has been carried on about how this abuse has been committed within church organisations, not just church organisations, mind you, but, but certainly including church organisations. It's just simply awful. So the stories just make us sick, feel crook that these things would happen. And some people will hear these stories and say, well, that confirms everything that I've always said about the church. And they use it as an excuse to, to get their backs up against God. As if God and as if Christianity is the cause of it. Whereas that can't be further from the truth. Godly discipleship has never been the cause of such abuse. Ever. It's satanic. It's demonic. It's evil. The world has gotten into the church. Double-mindedness. People who claim to be Christians, but they do whatever they feel like to satisfy whatever cravings their sinful nature has. And in so doing, they make themselves to become enemies of God. And broken relationships, even speaking evil against one another, well, it's not the way of Christ. And therefore, it's not the way of disciples of Christ. Jesus told us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul and all of our mind. But then he said something which is perhaps a little more challenging to us. He said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. And to speak evil against one another breaks that law. Broken relationships are a symptom of the world getting into the church. A second symptom is a broken prayer life. We either stop praying altogether or when we pray we don't get answers to our prayers because we're not asking for the right thing. How's your prayer life? If you want to have a little bit of a bit of a health check on your spiritual walk with God, how healthy is my walk with God going at the moment? All you've really got to do is ask yourself, how's my prayer life going? You pray once a week, once a day. Maybe you pray a few times a day. 
Or are you somebody who, who just makes a prayer to God whenever you've got a major decision to make? Or when you're in strife? Or do you pray when, when someone you love is really sick and dying and that's about it? Or do you live a life of prayer? Do, do, do you spend the whole day with God? You know, when you're, you're out working in the paddock or driving the car or the tractor or riding the horse, you, you can just talk with the Lord and you're acutely aware of his presence and you're listening to him. How's your prayer life? Verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. How often do we not ask God for stuff? Now, sometimes I wonder if our faith just isn't big enough. Actually, I don't wonder. I just know it's not. Our faith isn't big enough. We don't ask him for stuff. We only ask him for things that we know are possible. But God is ready to do the impossible. Only we haven't asked for it. I hadn't planned to do this, but I'm just going to share with you a bit of an answer to prayer. I guess I'd been wondering what 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 was going to become of Westmar. Like our, our Westmar gathering was pretty small. And as you know, we've been praying for, for Teresa as Teresa's gone through lung cancer and Teresa's died. And so there's one less person in church and I really couldn't see much growth about to happen anywhere. But... Um, we knew that the Lord wanted us there, so we'd just keep going and we'll keep keep doing the service out at Westmar. And we just prayed. Well, Lord, if you, if you want to do anything with Westmar, it's you that's going to do it. And um, it's just all of a sudden started to grow. We've got a couple of new families involved and, and um, there's a family of Christians there who are just lovely Christian people and so keen and on fire and, and they're inviting people and she thinks that another another couple are going to be there this Sunday. And it's just, it's growing. Some of them have never been involved in the church at all. And now, if I was to be looking at it, I would have thought, oh, well, Westmount's not going to grow. But, Where's our faith? You just got to pray and say, Lord, you build your church. And he does. So God is ready to do the impossible, but we just don't ask him for it. But when you do pray, what do you ask for? If you have your checklist of what you're asking the Lord for, what's the most common things you pray for? You know, I haven't actually got the statistics on this, but in my mind, I, th- I feel that, the, what do you think the number one prayer that we pray in this church would be? If I, if I don't pray it, so if, if I hear it or pray, either pray it myself or hear somebody else pray it almost every Sunday, what do you think is the most common prayer we pray? Most, sorry? For rain. Yeah? I think that is probably the thing that we ask for more often than anything else. Lord, give us rain. Let me tell you, that's a prayer that you don't hear prayed in the city. Uh, that's a sign that we're in the bush. Okay? Unless they're on really bad water restrictions, then they pray for rain up in the dam. Okay? 
as soon as the season is no longer perfect, we start asking for rain. Now, don't get me wrong, it's right for us to pray for rain. After all, the Lord is the only provider of rain. He's sort of got a monopoly on it, hasn't he? Yeah. But I don't think that we should be asking the Lord for rain so that we can turn an average season into a bumper season. So what should we be praying for? What what should be top of our list for what we're asking the Lord for in our prayers? Well, the disciples asked Jesus that very question. And you know what he did? He taught them the Lord's Prayer. What's the first thing he taught them to ask? Okay, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. All right, so it starts out with praise, but we haven't asked for anything yet, have we? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there it is. Our first request should always be for God's kingdom to grow and for his will to be done. And do you know what happens when we pray prayers like that? I think God probably goes, excellent. Have I been waiting? I've been waiting for you to pray that. I've been waiting for you. Because you realise the Lord's Prayer, it's a very dangerous prayer to pray. Because when you pray, your will be done. You know what you're saying? It means, Lord, your will be done in my life. It means, Lord, I used to be the manager of my life and I'd organise it and do what I want. But, Lord, you're you're the manager. I want you to be doing your will in my life and through my life. I'll give up everything and be subject to you. If your will is for me to go on farming for the rest of my life, I will do that. If your will is to take me into deepest, darkest Africa as a missionary, I'll do that. Your will. You just show me your will. Lead me into your will. And I will be part of your will. But, but is that how we do pray? Is this the focus of our prayer life for us to be praising God and for us to be asking for his kingdom to come and for us to be asking for his will to be done? Now, I suspect that for many of us it's not. Um, we, we often jump ahead to the next bit, don't we? Give us this day our daily bread. Right? We're pretty keen to pray that sort of prayer. Give us something. Um, only we're probably more often going to ask, but Lord, give us a truckload of bread. Um, just in case we don't have any for the next few days, give us the truckload now. Give me, give, give me happiness. Look, give, give me a happy life, a happy wife, a happy kids. Uh, give me a new car and a nice house. A better job, Lord. Lord, please make my cows fat and give me good prices. That dollar, Lord, it's way too high. How about, Lord, Lord, give me a low dollar when I want to export stuff and give me a high dollar when I need to replace that bit of machinery. Give me health and wealth and well-being. I'm not asking for a lot, Lord. I just want enough to be comfortable. Is that more reflective of our prayers? I just want enough to be comfortable. You know something I've learned, folks? God's not interested in my comfort. He's not interested in your comfort either. 
at least not from an earthly perspective. Because the Lord is our comfort. Not the things that we have. The Holy Spirit, one of his names is the comforter. He is our comfort. And we feel that we need all of these things. We feel that we need this security. We feel that we need things stacked away for, I was going to say a rainy day, but for when it doesn't rain enough, just so that we can be comfortable. We feel we need all of this as if it's important. So are we praying for the right things? Verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I'm guilty as charged. That could be describing me. Am I asking for daily bread or am I asking for something else? You know what daily bread is? Daily bread is enough tucker so that you're going to make it through the day without starving and enough clothes so you're not going to freeze to death at night. That's daily bread. It's enough to get us by for a day so we can depend on the Lord tomorrow for that day and we can depend on the Lord the next day. So am I praying rightly or or wrongly? I, I guess it boils down to what is the motivation for my prayer? Am I asking for things to fulfill my worldly passions or am I truly seeking God's will and seeking to understand his eternal purposes? Because sometimes the two are completely different. Actually, always the two are completely different. Is my prayer life dominated by worldliness or godliness? What about the prayers that we pray together as a church? Are they dominated by worldliness or godliness? I better move on. I'm I'm running out of time fast. The remaining four I'm going to group together. Unfulfilled desires, pride, greed and a constant quest for self-gratification. We desire but we do not have. Why? Why? Well, because we're tempted and we're enticed by so much of what the world has to offer, worldliness, well, it's very desirable. But it doesn't fit with a godly life. I I don't think I have any doubt as to what James would say about the modern-day prosperity theology that gets preached from many, many pulpits and churches today. You you know, the sort of teaching that says, God wants you to be rich. God wants to bless you with an abundance. Um, if there was ever the world bursting into the church, there it is. Greed. The world has taught us to want more and more and more and there is never enough. A constant quest for self-gratification. Happiness and enjoyment, well, it's something that we've come to expect. We demand it. Right from childhood, our desire and our expectation is to be entertained. 
uh, to have everything that we want provided for us is almost considered a right. Hedonism is the word for it. Have you ever heard that word, hedonism? It means the quest for pleasure. And even in the church, for some, this becomes the goal of life. We make our pleasure God. We make our happiness our God. And all of these things are symptoms of the world getting into the church. It's a war. Our passions are at war within us, the the way of the spirit and the way of the world. But who's going to win the war? James says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, if we go to war against God, who do you think is going to lose? You don't have to think about that one, do you? Us, of course. It's only pride that sets us against God. I've got a friend who engineers weapon systems for military helicopters. Uh, very interesting bloke. And he has a saying, he says, it's not rocket science, which is a pity because I understand rocket science. <laughs> um, and he does. Like He knows how to make rockets go to go and blow things up, right? But for most of he understands rocket science, but we don't. But friends, this isn't rocket science. It's not hard to understand. Satan wants us to be under his spell and to be captivated by his desires because that makes us very ineffective as Christians. Satan wants to distract us from the eternal and to focus us on the here and the now and all of the earthly pleasures that this world has to offer. And when you think about it, we spend so much of our lives chasing after these these earthly, worldly things. Satan's generally pretty effective in what he does, isn't he? If his purpose is to distract us from God's will and from God's eternal plan, well, he's done a brilliant job of it. But God wants us more. God loves us so much that he sent his son to rescue us from all of that. He sent his son to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness. And our walk into godliness begins as we humble ourselves before God. When we give up our chase that we have, give up pursuing all these things of the world. We give up all of the hopes and dreams that this world has been pulling us to. And we say, enough is enough. And as we draw near to God, he draws near to us. Yeah, worldliness, it, it might seem like something that was so ensconced in that, that it's like a web that just entangles us and it's sticky and we just can't break free of this worldliness. And we think there's no way out of it. But there is a way out. James says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. He says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Now, I've got to hold on to that. 
I've got to hold on to that every day. Because every day I'm feeling this web entangling me. This worldliness. I start praying for the wrong things. Or I don't pray at all. Or I start talking badly about people. I did it again this morning. That's not godliness. It's worldliness. So I've just got to tell myself every day, I can get free of this. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think back over our lives and over our history, Lord, in the church we have seen broken relationships. In our lives we've had broken relationships. We've spoken ill of people. Lord, our prayer life has been so dull and so empty. Sometimes we go for weeks without praying. Sometimes we go days without praying. Sometimes our prayers just seem like, well, are they even real? Is it just a discipline that we do? Or are we truly communicating with the living God? Lord, sometimes we don't even pray for the things that, that, that target your heart. Lord, tune our hearts so that we would desire the things that you desire. So that we would pray for the things that your heart longs for. And Lord, give us a bigger vision. Help us to, to, to truly know that you are the God who does the impossible. And help us to pray for the impossible. Help us to pray that your will would be done in this town and in this district. That your will would be done in our lives. Lord, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your kingdom to grow. Lord, there's so many people who we know, people who we work with, people who we live near, people who are we get alongside in all sorts of community organisations, people who don't know you. Lord, give us a love for these people and give us a desire for these people to come to know Christ. Lord, forgive us for the times when we've looked at these people and gone, oh, I don't think I'll even bother praying for you. You're too hard. Because, Lord, you are the God who does the impossible. Lord, show us who you want us to pray for, that, that they would come to faith, that they would give their lives and their hearts to you. Lord, forgive us for being a people who just seek pleasure. Lord, let pleasure not be our God. You are our God. Lord, give us a will, give us a resolve to turn our backs on the devil, to to resist him, to actively resist him and say, no, Satan, I'm not going to follow your worldly ways anymore. 
I'm drawing near to the Lord my God. Lord, you have won us. Rule victorious in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.